This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Everybody, welcome back to the Friday episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. Daphna, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's been a it's been an interesting week with these BPD definitions. And I guess if people are feeling like, okay, we're tired of the definitions, we've got we've got something exciting, I think, today, don't you think? That that's right. That's right. That was, as we mentioned yesterday, we decided that we were gonna bring on uh, an expert that uh, wouldn't really go over the definitions again. Mostly because, like we said, Dr. Jensen has already given us one hour of his time and the episode is available for you on the Main Incubator podcast. And and then Dr. Ben Kolari is coming up uh, very soon in the next few weeks. So we wanted to give the opportunity to a rising star in the field of neonatology to um, discuss with us a little bit of his work and how it helps us think of BPD in a bit of a different light. Um, so we, we have the pleasure of having on with us Dr. Kent Willis, who's an assistant professor at uh, the University of Alabama in Birmingham in the department in the Division of Neonatology. Uh, his uh, NIH NHLBI K08 uh, supported lab studies, the neonatal gut lung axis and the fungal microbiome. Um, he is uh, very active on social media. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. give you all those links in a second, but uh, hey, without a, further ado, please. follow, uh, right? Yeah, he's a definitely a must follow. So without further ado, just uh, yeah, join us in welcoming uh, Kent Willis to the podcast. Kent, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us this morning. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, we're very happy to have you on. Um, I think we're, 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 we've been talking off air about having you on next year um, to talk a bit more about your research. Um, but we're very excited to have you on because of the work that you do at the University of Alabama. And um, for the people, you are the director of the, of the what is the, you, your lab is called the, the Willis Lab, right? Uh, we call it the Willis Lung Lab, yeah. The Willis Lung Lab, I'm sorry, I knew I was missing something. And, and, I, and I will point out that it's the University of Alabama at Birmingham. We are very much not the University of Alabama, where oh. all the college students go to get drunk. Oh, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Birmingham, Birmingham, then the distinguished uh, lung lab. <laughs> exactly. We, we we pride ourselves on not being a party school. Okay. <laughs> um, you you do a lot of research on um, the gut lung axis, and and I think the work that you're doing and other investigators in this field is really going to help re define or reshape how we think about BPD. And so I was hoping that for the audience who may not be familiar with what that even is, could you tell us what is the gut lung axis and and what does it entail? So at this most simple level, your gut lung axis would be the influence of gut physiology on lung physiology, right? So if you want to take the most basic step. But the question then is, well, what aspect of gut physiology might affect lung physiology. Um, and there's a couple ways that might play out. So usually when somebody using this term, they've, they're, they're talking about the influence of the microbiome or the microbiota within the gut. Um, and they're suggesting a way that the gut microbiome might affect 
lung development or the lung response to inflammation and injury. And that might be a multitude of different ways. Um, so you have to remember that the microbiome serves as an interface between you and any nutrition that goes into your gut between, um, and then, so that means metabolism is affected by your microbiome. The metabolites are, that your surface in your bloodstream are affected by your microbiome because they, you know, do some processing of your food, et cetera. So all nutrition has something to do with the microbiome for the most part, right? That's a big driver. Uh, but your education of particularly your innate immune system um, is driven in larger part by its exposure to the microbiome. So your innate immune system learns what's friend, what's foe, how much to react to friend and foe, and when to react and when not to react to you a lot by its interactions with the microbiome. And so a lot of early immune education is driven by the, micro, uh, by the microbiome. And so that might affect things in a lot of different ways. Um, but I think that is those two aspects of the microbiome, either as a nutritional or a as a metabolite interface or as a immune education source are, are probably the two most principal ways that the gut microbiome might affect the lung microbiome. So, so I actually have a question. We talk a lot, obviously, the, the gut microbiome is, is very much a, a hot topic. We, we can basically connect it to all of the other systems. Um, but I've always been a curious, curious, I'm not a basic science researcher, obviously. Um, but, you know, we, our respiratory tract has a mucosal membrane also where we interface with antigens. Um, and what about like, is the reverse true? Like how, how does, the, how do, is, what is the developing science on that? Like when we have, uh, when our babies are interacting with those antigens through the respiratory mucosa, how does that affect lung disease? So interestingly, in the field of BPD research, the lung interface, lung microbiome potentially interfacing with the lung, with the lung interface actually is probably ahead of the gut lung access research. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, to say, A, that's possible, um, but B, I think the main issue that makes that a little bit, oh, and I should say as a shout out that uh, Vivek Lal, um, who's one of the associate professors in our group, that's his focus of research. Um, and he's done a lot um, in related to lung microbiome and bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Um, the issue with the lung microbiome versus the gut microbiome is one of a systems issue. So when the human uh, microbiome project occurred, they left the lung out because it was assumed it had to be sterile. And so lung microbiome research is about 10 or so years behind everywhere else because we didn't get that boost that happened with the gut microbiome, for example. So while the gut microbiome data has like blossomed and people have been doing all kinds of stuff with figuring out what it did, that boost, a large part, was related to the Human Microbiome Project, just kind of like the Human Genome Project helped boost human, you know, genetics by sequencing the, you know, the human genome, right? So that kind of big push by the NIH didn't happen for the lung microbiome. So we know a lot less about it. Um, so most of the work with related directly with lung microbiome has been done. And I, this is in, in a large degree the same for the gut lung access research. Most of that's been done either in adults with COPD. Or um, if it's pediatric, it's related to either asthma research or um, 
Cystic fibrosis? Uh, pneumonia. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> Wait, I just forgot a whole field. Or it's related to pneumonia research. And those are the like the three areas where most of that has been done. Um, uh, I wanted to um, ask you a little bit as to where do we stand today? Um, I'm not exactly sure how long this field of research has been uh, ongoing. I mean, you, you, you alluded to that a little bit, but... Um, what is our understanding of the contribution of disruption in the gut microbiome on the development of BPD? So I would say with gut microbiome, we don't really have human published data that has strongly supported that to this point. Um, So none of that really exists at the moment. Um, We have published... Um, my fellowship research was um, antibiotic exposure in mice um, mm-hmm. that we've done looking directly. So we can, you can manipulate the, the microbiota that way. But there hasn't been a very much of uh, large amounts of research. There's one key paper um, from uh, the 2020, I want to say. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's the Galashare et al. paper, which was published in um, the... European Journal of Respiratory um, Science in 2020. Um, That's probably the landmark paper for this field at the moment. Um, And so they took an interesting approach in that they sampled a bunch of different babies um, serially, and they compared how their lung microbiome developed versus their gut microbiome. And as these things diverged from similarity, those babies that diverged more rapidly were more likely to get bronchopulmonary dysplasia. I'll be associated with the development of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. So I would say that that is a, actually a really strong paper and, you know, arguably the number two uh, respiratory journal. Um, but those kind of human data are primarily observational. So it, it doesn't tell you the direction of, ca- of causality, right? So it doesn't tell you that the lung microbiome caused BPD. It tells you that a change in the lung microbiome was linked to a development of BPD, which very well could go the other direction too. In fact, probably the nature of the science would be they go both, both things are occurring, right? It may be that the lung microbiome affects your lung, but it's totally possible that changes in the host or changes in the oxygen exposure also affect the microbiome. So it's probably going back and forth. There's probably some extent, both things are probably true. But I would say that that paper from uh, European Journal of Respiratory uh, is probably the best human paper at the moment. Um, I wanted to then ask you your, in your expert opinion, what do you think is the potential for this field of research on how we either, I guess it's a, it's, it's a two part question, but on how do we think about BPD and also how we manage or slash prevent obviously BPD because we, uh, the goal would be to prevent and, and treat if we, if we can prevent it. So as I hinted, when I talked about ways, the lung micro, the gut microbiome might affect the lung. Uh, physiology. And one of the things I mentioned was um, immune education, right? So I would say that the strongest evidence for how the lung microbiome might uh, affect the, the gut microbiome might affect the lung is asthma research, uh, particularly work done by Mary Claire Arietta at British Columbia. Um, and they've been able to show that the components of the microbiome help set up what your lung immune system does, right? And similarly, um, Hitesh Deshmukh's lab, he's an MD-PhD neonatologist uh, nationwide. He's done similar work with neonatal pneumonia. 
Um, and so they've been able to show that in those two conditions, the way your gut microbiome kind of sets up the way your immune system responds. And that would suggest that if you alter the way your immune system responds during the newborn period, you might also respond how inflammation plays out, right? You might make it more likely to propagate, or if you change the microbiome a different way, perhaps you could tamp down on some of that like runaway inflammation in the lung, right? So that gives us the question of could we interface with how BPD develops by maybe say tamping down your risk to get severe BPD by altering your, your microbiome, right? And thus telling your immune system to lay off your lungs during this oxygen disposure, you know, injury, right? So that's, that I think is the, is the goal of both lung microbiome BPD research and gut microbiome BPD research, right? Can we find a way to um, alter the development and propagation of inflammation during that first, you know, month of life while BPD is developing. And do you think the long-term uh, end product will be uh, a medication of some sort, or do you think it's um, optimizing the things we already know about protecting the the microbiome? Things like, so, let's say, breast milk and uh, avoiding, uh, you know, extraneous antibiotic use, things like that. So I would say that the strongest way to change microbiome is nutritionally related things. So it very, very well be that, you know, op- doing things that optimize gut health in the baby, like maybe that's breast milk, right? Um, maybe those things do help in some degree, right? Um, we've had good data, um, Canty um, et al. Um, has done a lot of stuff with antibiotic exposure. So maybe more, maybe more than anything, our long running crusade to lower the amount of antibiotic exposure these babies get is something that is going to be a huge factor. Um, I, I Intervening with the microbiome has a several, both theoretical and practical hurdles to figure out. Um, there was a great editorial actually in this week's edition of the Blue Journal, where they were talking about trying to figure out how to intervene with the lung microbiota. Um, and we just really don't really know how to do that very well yet, right? We, probiotics are the thing people think about when we want to say we want to move the microbiome. Preemies actually may be the exception, right? That while your microbiome has not assembled itself very much, you might be able to do some stuff, right? There's a great mm-hmm. randomized, like Arietta, uh, Mary Claire Arietta again, um, did a recent uh, randomized clinical trial of Ultimate Flora Baby, which is one of the probiotics, right? They were able to show some good establishment of bifida uh, from that probiotic. That would not happen if you gave that probiotic to an adult, right? The colonization resistance of the microbiome strives to keep itself the same, just like any other kind of homeostatic measure for any other part of your body, right? Like it's very driven at maintaining homeostasis. So it's very hard to change the microbiome in any significant way. Like it just likes to revert back to whatever set point it has kind of determined itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe there's some probiotics or symbiotics, which are advanced, which might be something we could help intervene. It might work better in babies than it works in other people. Um, I have not seen good drug development that um, makes it likely that we're going to be able to use a drug anytime soon. Like, I would love that to be the case, but I don't know that we have anywhere near that level of stuff. And then on the basic, very, very basic 
science route, there's some very interesting ways of delivering specific viruses, um, specific bacteria that can kill off other bacteria that are, you know, proposing as new ways to change the microbiome. But at the, at the moment, we're trying to figure out what changes we might need to make before we can even figure out if we can make those changes, right? So at the moment, we don't know what we need to change your microbiome to, to make it better, or if we, even if we can do that really at a 100% level. Um, so that's kind of the first thing. We got to figure out how to make your microbiome different or what different we want before we start trying to make some changes, right? What's the goal? We don't know what the goal is at the moment, right? There are things you can definitely do to change the microbiome. You can do fecal microbiota transplant. I mean, Hitesh Desh Milk has a nice amount of, um, non-human primate paper this earlier this year where they did that for neonatal pneumonia. That works great in theory. It makes me very nervous to do fecal, myota, fetal microbiota transplant in babies when I, again, I don't know what I need to change your microbiome to. So it's a transplant. I could transplant it. I can certainly change it if I wipe out your microbiome and then try to give you someone from somebody else. But I don't really know what I want to do, and that makes me nervous to try to do it, right? So I don't see that one coming to human therapy anytime soon, right? But it's certainly effective, certainly effective for C. diff diarrhea, for example. But in C. diff diarrhea, we know all we really want is to give you a, a microbiome that doesn't contain the level of C. diff. So that's a little bit easier to figure out. We don't necessarily know the long-term implications of that, right? We might be giving people microbiomes that set them up for obesity risk, but we don't really know that. Um, and I worry more about those kind of side effects in babies who might have a whole lifelong effect of that microbiome, right? Then say you or I, they get a, we, we want the C. diff to be gone. We get a fecal transplant. That's, I mean, what you're describing is basically a whole new area of neonatal research that seems pretty unexplored. Um, do, do you gauge a lot of, uh, of newcomers to this field who are interested in, in, in contributing to the research work, or is this still pretty, very much an untapped field? I'm, I'm asking this for the trainees or young career neonatologists who are considering this as a potential research interest. Um, is this is this now a crowded field, or is this still very much uh, the Eldorado of neonatology? I don't know that we're at Eldorado stage, but I definitely think there's still plenty of things for you to explore. Um, like any kind of research, it's very good, easy to do bad research, and taking your time to learn how to really carefully understand what makes a meaningful microbiome change, how to get over all of the technical hurdles to do that work well is very challenging, right? It's very easy to do a, a, a mouse study and then make some very bad decisions, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So like any form of research, you need a good mentor that's done this and knows what they're doing, right? Rather than doing too much. But hey, I mean, I this was a field of research that we weren't doing anything on in fellowship and um, I was like, this is what I want to do. And we went and found the mentors, you know, outside of our division that helped us come up with that. And so, you know, it's, it's how much your drive and your fellowship director is willing to let you, you know, strive to do that. But find if you surround yourself with the right amount of mentors and experience and you really want to do something, you can, you can figure it out, do it right. Like we're not, uh, we've been through a lot in our education. We can, we can do good stuff if we put our minds to it at this point in our, in our lives. Right? I, I agree. 
I agree. And I think it reminds me of the fact that this in today's day and age, you don't need, you don't necessarily need to have mentors, uh, especially during your training, right by your side. You can still engage and interact and interface with other people on social media, through email and stuff like that. We've had so many people being great examples of that. And I guess I would um, give a shout out to uh, to your lab that people can find out more about uh, at uh, www.willislonglab.com or on Twitter at LabLong. And you're also yourself on Twitter at Kent Willis MD. Um, and, and you post a lot of, you're very active on social media. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's, I mean, yeah, this is, this is a great resource to even get into this lane and start becoming more familiar with the work being done. Um, definitely. Any more questions? Um, I think this was terrific. Yeah, no, I agree. I, my, that's my question is for people who are interested in this area or maybe our trainees who are still trying to find their area of interest, if you're okay, if people um, reach out and we can get some more buzz going. Oh, uh, absolutely. I, I think if you're trying to come up with a new mentorship plan, the best work happens when you find two mentors who are working slightly similarly and you put yourself at the interface between mm-hmm. the two of them and you make a mm-hmm. synergy between those two mentors work. That's where you really have the opportunity to propel yourself into something where you can become the unique person that is the expert in that particular area. Um, and it just offers you a great opportunity to grow. And that's why I always tell my uh, fellows and my other trainees, my grad students and postdocs, et cetera, like this, how do we make this uh, an avenue that's beside my avenue and kind of grows you into something that can make you a unique, give you a unique research aspect. Cause that's really what you want, right? You want something you can sustain mm-hmm. for the next few years of your career, at least before you have to switch tracks and come up with something else because yeah. the science changes. That's so. right. Well, and it that's sounds like that's exactly what you did at, at the, just an opportune time um, for this type of research. Yeah, I mean, I, I greatly appreciate uh, Dr. Tilati, who's a program director where I did fellowship, who really, you know, supported me in allowing me to push that and, you know, do a, a lot Which, of basic science research and snuck away at the lab at night that really, you know, helped me do some great stuff. Let's, let's give them a proper shout out. What's the fellowship program? Can you, uh, for the people who may not be able to. That's the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis. There you go. There you go. So that if, yeah, I mean, listen, people are in residency, they're looking for fellowship spots. And if they listen to this interview and they're like, yeah, this is what I'm interested in. And that, yeah, yeah. Then Tennessee. We're going to give shout outs. We're going to give shout outs to where I am currently, which is the University of Alabama, Birmingham, because we really <laughs> like research here and we really like microbiome research too. So if you come, we will love to do some research with you. We got some great, great mentors, obviously, Wally and Amble are, you know, some of the best. So and, and the I rest feel of like... us, uh, more junior people are are happy to, you know, training. And I feel like the University of Alabama at Birmingham, at Birmingham almost doesn't deserve, doesn't need any introduction. And we've, we've showcased mm-hmm. so many people from yeah. Dr. Carlo, Dr. And Gentle, studies. yourself. Yeah. Um, you guys are a star-studded crew. So um, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm perfectly happy uh, showcasing <laughs> both places. Um, Kent, this, this was, this was fun uh, catching up. I appreciate you taking the time to explain to us a little bit uh, about the, the gut lung access. Uh, what is that all about? How does that affect BPD uh, understanding and research and, and future? Um, we'll put all your contact info on the episode page. Um, thank you so much. Um, this was, this was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.